Good morning. Today's scripture reading is Exodus chapter 2, 1 through 10. In the Pew Bible, it's page 45. Now a man from the house of Levi went and took as his wife a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son, and when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him three months. When she could hide him no longer, she took for him a basket made of bulrushes and daubed it with bitumen and pitch. She put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the river bank. And his sister stood at a distance to know what would be done to him. Now the daughter of the Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river. While her young women walked beside the river, she saw the basket among the reeds and sent her servant woman, and she took it. When she opened it, she saw the child, and behold, the baby was crying. She took pity on him and said, This is one of the Hebrews' children. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and call you a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Go. So the girl went and called the child's mother. And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this child away and nurse him for me, and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. When the child grew up, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses, because she said, I drew him out of the water. This is the word of the Lord. I ask you to take your Bibles one more time and turn to Exodus chapter 2. This morning we come to one of the most well-known and well-loved of the Old Testament stories, I think. Moses in the bulrushes, it was certainly... One of my favorite stories when I was a kid in Sunday school. Other kids have different favorites, I suppose. I remember when I was a teenager, I was over at my friend's house for dinner. And when it came time for family devotions, my friend's little brother, Daniel, who must have been, I don't know, six years old at the time, he asked his dad if we could hear the story of Jonah and the shark. And uh, it wasn't immediately clear what story he was requesting did he mean Jonah and the whale or maybe he meant Noah and the ark you know because Noah and Jonah sound similar and so does Moses for for that matter so there's plenty of potential here for confusion among all of these stories in scripture that's for sure but what if some of these similarities across stories was actually intentional What if the biblical authors expect us to make connections between all of these well-known and well-loved narratives? What if all of this is designed to help us to better understand the grand narrative that runs throughout the entire scriptures? And I'm here talking about the, the salvation, the story of salvation found in the Lord Jesus Christ. I suspect that the more that you have become familiar with the word of God, the more you have loved it and appreciated it and just uh, treasured the the beauty and the depths of all that are contained. The title of today's sermon is Moses' Ark, and that's more than just an homage to my friend's kid brother. It reflects the fact that this text is going to point us first backwards to Noah— And then it's going to propel us forward, I expect, to Jesus. 
it's, re- it's very important to remember, not just today, but throughout our whole study of Exodus, that all of these Old Testament narratives are simply waypoints on the highway of redemption, if we could call it that, that highway that leads directly to the Lord Jesus Christ. Remember that when Jesus was walking with those two disciples on the road to Emmaus, when he was interpreting for them the things in Scripture that, that pertain to him, He was able to begin with Moses. He might have even turned to Exodus chapter 2. But this highway that takes us all the way to, you know, from the garden to glory, that's a long and winding road. And that's a road that I'm sure you know by now is fraught with dangers on every side. And so the question, I suppose, is how can we be sure of reaching the destination? All of these promises that the Lord has made to us, how, what is it that guarantees that they're going to be fulfilled? You know, we're expecting the capital S seed of the woman to come along and to crush Satan's head. But on the way, there's going to be billions of small S seeds that must come. And all of these small s seeds that come along the way um, have the experience of the seed of the serpent nipping at their heels. I'm just saying there's, a, there's an awful lot of contingencies that we're dealing with here. The question is, how can we be assured of the outcome? And it seems to me that the answer to these kinds of questions can be summarized in one word, and that is the word providence. Providence, the providence of God. What do you understand by the providence of God? The Heidelberg Catechism asks and answers this way. The almighty, everywhere present power of God, whereby, as it were by his hand, he still upholds heaven and earth with all creatures and so governs them that herbs and grass, rain and drought, fruitful and barren years, meat and drink, health and sickness, riches and poverty, indeed all things, come not by chance, but by his fatherly hand. All things come to us, not by chance, but governed by the fatherly hand of God. That is providence. John Piper has written a magisterial work on the topic, and he defines God's providence as his purposeful sovereignty, which is directing and governing governing all of the meticulous details of our lives. And, he's, and, and all of that is being governed towards a very specific goal, namely, quote, the Christ-exalting glorification of God through the gladness of a redeemed people in a new world. That's a, that's a very Piperian s- sentence right there. Uh, but when you tease it all out, he's exactly right. And this is Exodus language as well. I hope you can recognize this. This book is all about the Lord God freeing a people for the purpose of worship. And his providence is going to guide and direct and and so guarantee that outcome. Our passage this morning is going to allow us to catch a, a glimpse of the great salvation that lies still in the future for this original audience. And we're going to, at the same time, I think, get a lot of confidence that, that we are going to see that salvation. 
and that we are going to be directed by the providential hand of our gracious Heavenly Father. So let's take a closer look at the text, and uh, we'll seek to see and understand the providence of God as it relates to four seeds. Four seeds. And the first thing that we come across in the passage is a providential conception. We see in the first two verses a providential conception. Now in chapter 1, the narrator has done a lot of really good groundwork for the present chapter. He's given us just the right amount of background, just the, just the perfect information that we need that sets up a couple of different expectations. First of all, I think by the end of chapter 1, we're now ex- expecting something very ordinary to occur. Um, you'll recall, perhaps, that this last chapter has summarized maybe something like 400 years in, in just a paragraph. And it has described for us the exponential growth of this people, this population, this people of Israel, under the blessing of the Lord. So what we read in verse 1 of our chapter is, is nothing really out of the ordinary. A man takes a wife, and she conceives and bears a child. There, th- this exact scenario is playing out in hundreds of thousands of Hebrew households, maybe even in the same same moment. In fact, it had already played out in this particular household. We discover in verse 4, for example, that there's an older daughter, an older sister, whose name we eventually learn to be Miriam. And in chapter 7, verse 7, we learn of another son named Aaron, an older brother who's maybe three years older. So on the one hand, to read of a conception and a birth is, is very ordinary. This is, the, this is the regular stuff of life that we're talking about. On the other hand, is there even such a thing as an ordinary conception and birth? I don't think so. You know, the, the temptation is to view conception and birth, birth in very naturalistic kind of materialistic ways we we view them as a a biological given as even as a necessity what's worse is when people view conception as accidental and uh, birth as optional when we think and act in these ways we're denying the extraordinary nature of conception and birth for every one of the the millions of births that are taking place there in chapter 1. There could be a description like we have in chapter 2 for every single one of them. There's always a very particular man and a very particular woman, and every child that is born out of that union is a special creation of God from the moment of conception, from the time that the Lord begins to knit us together in our mother's womb. No, Even before that, from before that time, every person has what we might describe as a providential particularity. We affirm this when we sing that hymn by John Ryland, as we sometimes do in this church, Sovereign Ruler of the Skies. Do you remember the verse that says, His decree who formed the earth fixed my first and second birth. Parents, Native place and time, 
all appointed were by him. This is precisely what Paul proclaims to the philosophers on Mars Hill in Acts chapter 17. He says, The Lord God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as if he needed anything, since he himself gives life to all mankind, life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he's actually not far from each one of us, for in him we move, live and move and have our being. This is the, this is the testimony of scripture as a whole. That God is in sovereign control over every single detail of your life. And I want you to understand just right off the bat that you are no mistake. You're not an accident. You're not a, a freak of nature. You are the special creation of the living God, who, by the way, is a loving Heavenly Father. And your... your um, your life, the breath that you take, is an ongoing testimony to the fact that, that you are his handiwork and that you need uh, to give an account to him one day. It's a testimony to the fact that God himself is, is actually very near and he's a God who may be found. And so I would just encourage you today, if you haven't already, that you would seek after this God, that you should... Um, determined to know nothing else or no one else before you are in a right relationship with your creator. His promise is that those who seek him shall find him. Okay, so chapter one has led us to expect something ordinary, which is actually extraordinary, namely the conception and birth of another human being. Don't ever let that miracle grow commonplace in your mind. However, there's something extra, extraordinary about the conception and birth that's described here. The narrator, I think, has set this up quite nicely for us as well, although the details are not so nice to read. You remember back in chapter one, you'll, you'll recall words like deal shrewdly, afflict, heavy burdens, oppressed, ruthless, slavery, bitter, hard labor. It goes on and on to describe the pressing, crushing weight of the oppression that these people were made to feel at the hands of the Egyptians. And it's not, it's not a, a big stretch at all to imagine the Israelites lifting up their, their faces and their hands to heaven, faces and hands that were probably burnt from handling bricks that they've just baked. It's not hard to imagine these people crying out for a deliverer. Isn't there someone who will rescue us from this oppression? And I wonder, have you, have you yet come to understand something of what it's like to feel that way? To be enslaved, to be afflicted, to feel the torment of doing things that you don't want to do. I mean, you, 
you do want to do them, but you, you don't want to do them. And time and time again, you fall into doing them. And, and all the while, you're failing to do the thing that you know that you ought to do, that a part of you wants to do. Have, have you ever cried out something along the lines of, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? If so, then, I, then you might be encouraged to read of the providential conception of an extraordinary boy. Already in verse 1, our ears kind of perk up when we read that a man from the family, the household, the lineage of Levi has taken a wife from that same line. Now, it is true that at this stage, you know, there was no real distinction about the tribe of Levi, but, but shortly, and certainly by the time this letter would have been written and presented to its original audience, the readers would have understood that the tribe of Levi had been set apart for priestly duty. So you put this together and, and already we have this expectation that this one, who the spotlight now seems to be on, is going to have priestly blood if we could put it that way, that in the providence of God, this one is going to be destined to be some sort of mediator between God and his people. It just hints at it now, but it, it's enough to get us kind of excited. Okay, so we're off to a good start. Let's move on to see in the second place a providential concealment, a providential concealment this brings us to verses 3 to 4, and we read in verse 2 that this Levite couple conceived and bore a son. Now, ordinarily, of course, that is a wonderful thing. I've had the great privilege on two separate occasions of hearing that excited announcement from the nurses, it's a boy, congratulations. But as the narrator has already set things up to us, for us, and he's explained already that to the Israelites in Egypt, the cry, it's a boy, is essentially a death sentence. By this point in the game, Pharaoh's, um, his program, his, uh, his dastardly plan was, was widespread. It had gone beyond the, the midwives. It was now wide open. It was in the public. And all of the Egyptians had been commanded that if they discover any Hebrew boy, they were to exterminate them by throwing them into the Nile. So in this context, the ordinary delight that would accompany giving birth to a baby boy, that would quickly give way to an overwhelming sense of dread. but not so for these parents. What they were overwhelmed with, first of all, was the beauty of this child. I've also had two opportunities to be overwhelmed by the same thing. And I know that, you know, every child is beautiful and blah, 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 you know, that sort of thing. But let's be honest, there are some babies that are born with faces that only a mother could love. My dad says that I fit squarely in that category. 
He reports that when I was born, the doctor slapped my mother. <laughs> but this baby, <laughs> verse 2 says that this baby was fine. I think that's how the Hebrew reads there. Objectively speaking, this was a beautiful baby boy. However, I think there's more to it than that. I think I like Stephen's description uh, in that powerful sermon that he gives right before he's martyred. In Acts chapter 7, verse 20, Stephen says that this baby was beautiful in God's sight. In other words, this, this was a son in whom the Lord was well pleased. Another way of saying this might be like what was said of Noah, to say that this particular one found favor, found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Not because of anything intrinsic in him, and certainly not because of anything that he would subsequently do to earn God's favor, but simply because the grace and the favor of the Lord rested on him from birth. Before he had the opportunity to do anything good or bad, God's grace was upon him. He was beautiful in the sight of the Lord. And this might seem like a stretch, but I, I just kind of feel burdened to speak to the young ladies especially. I don't know if you've noticed this, ladies, but our passage is full of young ladies, all of whom are found acting in ways that are in accordance with the word of God. And I, I understand, not from experience, but I just understand a little bit about um, the, the tremendous pressure that is on girls and young girls and women to be beautiful. And by that, I mean physically beautiful. You might feel this pressure internally, but you especially feel this pressure from the world and from this culture who don't, by the way, they don't have a clue about anything. But of, of course it's fine for you, want, for you to want to look and, and feel pretty. But I really want you to understand that what truly matters is that you are beautiful in God's sight. Proverbs 31.30 speaks of, it's really speaking pure wisdom when it says to you, charm is deceptive and beauty is fleeting. But a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. Along these same lines, 1 Peter chapter 3 instructs, your beauty should not be from outer adornment, such as elaborate hairstyles or the wearing of gold jewels or fine clothes. Rather, it should be that of your inner self, the unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is of great worth in God's sight. The point is, ladies, everyone, be beautiful in God's sight. Make that your ambition. Now, of all the books and commentaries that I have on Exodus, and by God's grace, I have some great ones, the very best commentaries are the New Testament, the books of the New Testament. I already um, referenced Stephen and uh, his interpretation that he gives on these events in his sermon. But we also find these parents inducted into the Hall of Faith, as, as Glenn read for us in Hebrews chapter 11. 
Verse 23 of that chapter says this. By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw that the child was beautiful and they were not afraid of the king's edict. That right there is incredible insight into the thoughts and the actions of this Levite couple. And I want you to just try to feel the weight of this. So Pharaoh's edict is looming large, okay? It's meeting them right where they live. It's, it's knocking on their door. But for three months, they hid their baby boy. And that might seem to be you to be a, a fearful sort of a posture, you know, to be in hiding because you're afraid. But no, the author of the Hebrews explains that they concealed their child precisely because they didn't fear Pharaoh's decree. Fearing Pharaoh would result, you would think, in compliance. Faith, on the other hand, and understand that faith is, on the other hand, of fear. These two are opposites. You can't have one and have the other. So they're not acting out of fear. They're acting out of faith. And, and this couple in faith has made the decision that they are going to throw themselves and their baby boy at the mercy of God and upon his providence. That's a, that's a real deliberate action. That is a, a move of faith. Now, there's really two phases to, to this providential concealment. You've got, in phase one, they're hiding him at home. But that only lasts three months because babies of that age tend to be just a little bit noisy. So phase two begins in verse three, when his mother could hide him no longer. It says, she took for him a basket made of bulrushes. Now, some of you might have a little footnote in your Bibles beside bulrushes that says something like, or papyrus reeds. You know, there's some debate there. It, it really doesn't matter to me whether you picture this basket as being made from bulrushes or papyrus stalks. Really, it's just whatever floats your boat. But notice the attention to detail. Notice the, the care with which Moses' mom acts. She daubs the, the little vessel with bitumen, with pitch. She, she carefully coats the thing with, with tar to make it waterproof. And then she, the text says, put her child in it and placed it among the reeds by the riverbank. That's, that's so beautiful. I mean, you can just sense the tenderness of this mother the command was to chuck these baby boys in the Nile but this woman is tenderly placing her precious baby boy in a miniature boat and I don't want you to get the idea that this must have been easy for her sometimes we over spiritualize things and think that um, acts of faith must be like heroic and huge and no problem whatsoever no that's that's not how it works no doubt the the first water that this tar had to repel was the tears pouring out of this mother's eyes 
But do you see what she's doing? In, in placing her baby in the Nile, she's placing everything into the providential care of her heavenly father. In R.C. Sproul's book, The Invisible Hand, which is another great book-length treatment on this topic, in that book you can find this nugget, quote, if we understand the providence of God and the love and love the God of providence, we are able to worship him with the sacrifice of praise he inherently deserves. When things occur that bring pain, sorrow, and affliction into our lives, this understanding of providence is vital to all who would worship God. It's a worship of faith that's rooted in trust. Have you ever had to do something like this? To, to gently but confidently and with many tears place something or someone or some situation completely into the care of God's providence? Maybe it is one of your kids. And, and probably not physically, but, you know, maybe their lives aren't in immediate danger, but their souls certainly are. And there is nothing more that you can do than to prayerfully and carefully place that boy or that girl under the care of God's providence. That's all you can do. That, that terrible situation that situation that's making you tear your hair out and it's keeping you awake at night, have you taken that thing and put it in a basket and, and pushed it out into the river of God's goodness? Into the sea of his sovereignty? Doing that would constitute a real act of worship, as Sproul puts it, worship of faith and one that's rooted in trust. Now, there's more of the mother's care that's noted in verse 4. It says, and his sister stood at a distance to know what would be done to him. No doubt that was the mother's instruction, and this is all part of her concern. So, but we're dying to know, too, what's going to become of this boy, of this situation. And so we'll move on to our third point to see a providential catch. A providential catch, uh, verses 5 to 6. Verse 5 says that, it says, Now the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river. I love that. Now, I, I love the, the casualness with which so many biblical authors describe the providence of God. Many times you'll read things like this in scripture. Uh, I, I noticed this especially when we were going through Judges. You know, uh, the phrase... It just so happened, and I think that that's the biblical authors just having a little bit of fun with this. It's almost like they're delighted by how normal this appears, when the truth is that all of this is 100% miraculous. The probabilities that any one of these things might happen are basically infinite for all intents and purposes, so let alone the whole collection of them. You can't even do that math on those probabilities. The only explanation is going to be the providence of God. You can't put any of this down to chance. 
And the thing to know about providence is, yes, it's, it's oftentimes difficult. It's hard. But it's also oftentimes delightful. And, and a lot of times, it's both. Delightful and difficult in alternating fashion. And so it happens, it just so happens that a young woman selects this time and this place to bathe in the Nile. It just so happens that this young woman may perhaps be the only one in Egypt who could override and overrule Pharaoh's command. You ever think about that? You, you, if you think that Pharaoh is the most powerful man in Egypt or person in Egypt, you're wrong. It's his daughter. And some of you dads can testify to the reality of being wrapped around your little girl's finger. You, you act all big and tough, but whatever she wants, she gets. So this princess and her attendants happen, just happen upon the basket in the reeds, and they open it up, and lo and behold, it's one of the Hebrews' children. Now what happens next is going to be decisive. If Pharaoh's daughter feels compelled to obey her father's wishes, she's going to promptly drown that child. And you can imagine what it would be like to be Moses' sister at this point when she's, she's watching all of this from a distance. She, she must be on pins and needles watching this unfold, like staring at the princess's face, trying to read the response so imagine the relief when Miriam sees pity register on the princess's face. Imagine the joy when she hears Pharaoh's daughter begin to speak in baby talk. When, when she takes the, the, the baby up into her arms and first, you know, holding it against her chest, but then picking him up and touching noses with him. Pity. She feels tremendous pity. And that is a prominent feature of, of providence. You understand, don't you, that this is essential to salvation. That, that's really our only hope. That there, there, there would be one who is powerful, who represents the offended party, but who also looks upon our helpless condition and is moved to pity and compassion about our state. That's my only hope. And make no mistake, what we're witnessing here is a picture of salvation. And lest you think that I'm reading this into the text, I want you to know that the word for basket in verse 3 is the same word that's translated ark in Genesis 6 and 7 and 8 and so on. We're to understand, this is intentional, I believe, we're to understand that this basket is Moses' ark. Right down to the details of it being covered in pitch. So Noah's ark is the first picture of what it looks like to be brought safely through the waters of judgment by the providential hand of God. And now, in Moses' ark, we have another picture of salvation. In miniature, this Nile, this Nile River, this is a place of danger and destruction. 
quite possibly as she's wading along the shoreline, Pharaoh's daughter was stepping on the tiny little bones of Hebrew baby boys. But this one boat, boy, in, in this little boat, he's saved. He's brought safely through those dangerous waters. And all of this, of course, makes us look forward in expectation to another baby boy that would be born one day. This boy would also be one who is beautiful in God's sight. This is, this is a boy who would also be born under a death sentence. A wicked ruler named Herod would issue the widespread decree that Hebrew baby boys must be exterminated. But under the providential care of his heavenly father, this baby boy is going to escape that kind of treachery. And ironically, he's going to escape such treachery by fleeing to Egypt. The precious life of our Lord Jesus Christ is going to be preserved so that he might, at the right time, offer it up for us and for our salvation. So great is Jesus' pity for sinners such as we are. That, that he goes to Golgotha, the place of the skull, so that he might die in our place, so that we might be forgiven and set free from our bondage to sin. Have you experienced that salvation? If not, you can today. This salvation can be yours through repentance of your sins and through faith in Jesus Christ. If you want to know uh, what more about what this looks like, we would have no greater joy than to meet you on the front pew here after the service and show you Jesus. We'd love to point you to the one Savior for sinners, the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you are saved today, I wonder if you have re recently reflected on the providential circumstances that led up to your salvation. Have you thought about this recently? It's a good exercise. That person, that parent, that Sunday school teacher, that trial that brought you low, that passage of scripture that just by the Holy Spirit of God became alive when you read it. I'd, I'd encourage you to reflect on these things. And what happens when you do reflect on these, these what people might misinterpret as accidents or happy coincidences, no, if you recognize these for what they truly are, the directly particular providence of God in your life for your salvation, what I expect will happen is that you'll grow in your love and your appreciation for the God who has directed every single detail of your life towards your deliverance. Very quickly, let's turn to our fourth and final point to see something of God's providential care his providential care notice in verse 7 how quickly Moses' sister can think on her feet or rather how the Holy Spirit of God must have empowered her for this moment because even before Pharaoh's daughter can think of next steps Miriam is suggesting things she, Miriam suggests that she go find one of the Hebrew women who might be able to nurse the baby. This, this daughter of Pharaoh certainly 
wasn't prepared or wouldn't be equipped to do that. And maybe Miriam said something like, I, th I think I might know someone that can do that. And that sounds great to the princess. And so she says, go. And Miriam comes back with her mother, with the baby's mother. You can't have, you can't read verse 9 without a smile on your face unless you're spiritually dead. Pharaoh's daughter says to the mother, this random wet nurse, take this child away and nurse him for me and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. A baby is restored to his own mother just by happenstance and this mother gets paid by the princess for nursing her own son. Not only that, but she gets to spend the, the first three or four, who knows, very formative years with her son, no doubt bringing him up in the fear and the admonition of the Lord, all on Pharaoh's dime. And I'm asking you, don't you just love the providence of God? Friends, nothing happens by chance. It's all by God's design, and it's all for his good purposes. And I don't know if you've noticed this yet in the Christian life, but the providence of God very often intersects with our desires and our deepest delights. Very often, and every time contrary to what we truly deserve, the Lord is pleased to give us the desires of our heart. Not always, but often. When's the last time you were surprised and elated by a particular providence of God in your life that delivered to you more than you even thought to ask or could possibly imagine? I think the Lord delights to surprise us with his goodness and with our joy. And God's good providence continues, even as the child is weaned and then adopted by Pharaoh's daughter. He becomes her son. She names him Moses. It's her right to give the name as one who's doing the adopting. And this name Moses, it seems to be a, a play on words, whether in e Egyptian or Hebrew or whatever, in those languages. It's, it's a sort of a pun because it seems to mean that she drew him out of the water. This is a play on his origin, as you'll recognize. And the princess couldn't have known this, but it's also a hint to his destiny. Because Moses is going to be the one, I hate to give you a spoiler here, but he's going to be the one appointed by God to draw his people out of, out of Egypt. So even here, in the bestowing of names, we see the providence of God in action. He's got all of these details worked out. Moses is raised in the king's house, and there he enjoys all of the, the privileges, the benefits afforded to royalty, including a world-class education. Again, in, in his sermon in Acts chapter 7, Stephen mentions this education as Want just one of the indications of the providence of God in Moses' life. That he was, quote, instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians. 
and thus he grew mighty in his words and deeds. Under the providential care of God, Moses gets a world-class education, and unbeknownst to Pharaoh and his household, they're raising and training and equipping the very one who's going to figure prominently in their defeat. The point is, friends, and we're, we're out of time, so let me just make this point. The providence of God is gloriously displayed in the care of his people. I think we can see it clearly in the text. The question is, can you see it clearly in your life? Can you see it clearly in the lives of your brothers and sisters in Christ? Let's identify it. Let's laugh at it. Let's rejoice in it. Let's take deep comfort in it. And let's give God all of the glory for his meticulous providence and for his merciful salvation through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen? Amen. Amen. Amen.